don't know if you've been in Edinburgh uh, in recent days when it's just absolutely thronging with uh, folks who are over for the, the Fringe and, and the festival. Uh, I was over on Monday and Tuesday uh, on church business and uh, it was just absolutely crammed. All of the, the railings, every available space was full of advertisements for the various shows that are on uh, at the fridge and from the look of some of the adverts. Uh, some of them were not exactly intended for glorifying God or for edifying the uh, audience. Outside the free church offices, however, there was a van that was distributing canvas carrier bags to a group of young people. The, the bags had uh, a salter at the bottom and white lettering and a blue background with the most famous verse in the Bible on them, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And uh, sometime later, down in Princess Street, uh, just looking at the crowds, there they were, these, these bags with this amazing verse on them. Uh, and sometimes it was quite moving, and the Asian man stopped at the traffic lights, puzzled as he read over this verse. Amidst all of the, the clamour, uh, the conflicting voices of the throng, God's word goes out. God is calling. Uh, on the Tuesday morning, I fell into conversation with the guy that seemed to be in charge, and it was a, a group of brethren churches that had come together to organise this and they had 40 people, 40 young people who were giving out the bags and they were giving out 60,000 of them. God uses ordinary people to announce this call on people's lives to follow. C.S. Lewis uh, in his, his book Mere Christianity, which incidentally, if you've never read Mere Christianity, if you don't have it uh, in your home, you should get a copy because it's a superb book. Uh, mere Christianity, not in the sense that uh, Lewis is belittling it, but in the sense that he is saying, this is the core of what we believe, uh, stripping it down to uh, these great essentials. And this is what he says about the mission of the church. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them uh, little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. As we said earlier, Matthew is demonstrating the authority of Jesus. And here we see Jesus' authority to summon people to follow him. And we're going to look, uh, first of all, at the simple fact that Jesus does this. Jesus calls people to follow. And in particular, secondly, Jesus calls people who are despised by the world and makes them into people who are beautiful and useful for himself. And thirdly, Jesus, as this one who calls people, also has authority to protect those who follow him from being... Uh, subject to man-made rules imposed by others. The section that we have here, the calling of Matthew, uh, is, is doubly special because, of course, Matthew is the writer of the gospel that we have been studying these past few weeks. 
And notice that Jesus, as always, takes the initiative. Uh, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus went to Matthew and called him. Matthew was not seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking Matthew. And there's a profound truth uh, here. Uh, when it comes to faith, it is God who is the one who is doing the seeking. Before we are converted, our lives are given in to sin, which means that we're simply not interested. Uh, and if God doesn't intervene, we will do what we do best, which is live for ourselves. Now, notice that being a sinner, uh, according to this description, doesn't mean that we are necessarily bank robbers or murderers. Uh, it doesn't even mean that you're not a nice person. But it does mean that you live in God's world as though God did not exist. You have kept out the Lord of glory from all that's real and meaningful in your life. And in his great love, Jesus comes into the life of someone like Matthew and he calls him to himself, come and follow me. Now, God calls us in two different ways. Theologically, we speak about a general call and an effectual or effective call. And God's general call is going out to the masses. That day in Princess Street, God's general call was very clearly uh, going out. You don't always see his call uh, in white letters against blue background, but it was striking that day. And that's what happens in life. Uh, in different ways, we hear about the truth of God. It may be on a, a billboard in the side street, maybe from a Sunday school teacher, maybe from a friend, but we hear that God is true and he has sent his son Jesus into the world. It's totally new to us at first and we struggle with it. We're attracted by it, but at first it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And then as we grapple more and more with it, we, we get the very clear impression that it's going to cost us something. It's going to change our lives and we resist. We're not sure we're ready for it. And then God comes in this effectual call. His voice comes with power and gives us the ability to do what he commands. And this is what's happening now with Matthew. Because Matthew almost certainly had heard already about Jesus. Had a certain body of information about Jesus. Had maybe even heard him preach directly. But now... Jesus comes uh, and with an effective call speaks to Matthew and Matthew can do no other but follow after Jesus. And many of us in church this morning can testify to the effective power of the call of God in our lives. We were maybe trying to keep God out of our lives, keeping him at a distance, trying to fill our lives with things that would be distractions. And God did not give up on us. The hound of heaven pursued us, pulled down every obstacle that we had raised up uh, to his love. And eventually, uh, he drew us to himself. God is serious 
And you're here this morning uh, to hear the call of God on your life. God is calling to what Paul calls the obedience of faith. There is a faith that must always result in obedience. And Matthew has asked, has been asked by Jesus to do something, to follow him. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. Matthew didn't ask for the terms and conditions of his following Jesus. Matthew essentially wrote Jesus a blank check, the blank check of his life, and agreed to follow Jesus wherever it took him, whatever it demanded of him. He waived his rights to uh, restrictions, preferences, opt-out clauses. Jesus simply summoned him, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. And that is what every genuine Christian commitment is like. We hold back nothing. We yield our lives to Jesus because we trust him. We believe that he's good and that his rule is a perfect rule and uh, will not harm or shrink our lives, but will fill us up with blessing. Jesus calls people to himself. But secondly, Jesus comes to call those who are despised and to make them people who are beautiful and useful in his service. And that is certainly what was true of Matthew. Because Matthew was a tax collector. And in his day, a polite religious society looked down on people like Matthew. Uh, in fact, they were part of a group, and we'll see it again, of people who are known as tax collectors and sinners. It's a kind of uh, strange term. If we were to update it, uh, we would call this group uh, inland revenue workers and sinners. Now, uh, you may not like particularly to pay taxes, but uh, I think it's true to say that we don't think of people who work for uh, Centre One as being particularly heinous sinners. But it was different in Matthew's day because they worked for the Roman authorities and they were seen as hirelings of a tyrannical regime, uh, a foreign power. And not only that, but they were regarded as cheats because the Romans had, had farmed out uh, taxation and the tax collectors were able to take uh, from the tax they collected their own uh, remuneration. And many of them, of course, took more than they should have done. So Matthew was a pariah. Others were avoiding Matthew, kept well away from him. Jesus sought out Matthew. Jesus came for Matthew. And having followed him, Matthew throws a dinner party. And this is wonderful. Uh, he, he has a dinner party and his friends come. And of course his friends are <laughs> tax collectors and sinners because everybody else was avoiding people like Matthew. So all of these people come and they meet Jesus at the dinner party. Now, very practically... Uh, it's a reminder that people who have just come to faith in Jesus are always the best missionaries. Uh, so a new Christian is always the most effective missionary because he or she still has loads of people who have not yet come to know Jesus as Saviour. Uh, sadly, the, the case is, the longer you're a Christian, the, the kind of narrower that circle becomes unless you try really hard to keep up 
those friendships. But when you're a new Christian, you have all of these contacts. And Matthew had all of these people that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't want anything to do with, and he invited them to his house where they met with Jesus. And we can do that too. We can use our homes as uh, places for evangelism of the best kind, where Jesus is shared over a meal. But the Pharisees didn't like this, and they saw the fact that Jesus was having a meal with these people as a sign that he was essentially soft with sin. Uh, they, if they were in our day, they might have quoted the, the, uh, the proverb, birds of a feather flock together. And so they were tut-tut-tutting about the fact that Jesus had gone to be with these tax collectors and sinners because they prided themselves in keeping a distance from people who were regarded as somehow contaminated uh, by their connections. And in response to this mean, critical spirit that's coming from the religious leaders, we have this wonderful response from Jesus. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, notice this. Jesus is accepting for uh, the time their uh, definition of who's righteous and who's a sinner. Uh, So Jesus isn't teaching that there are a group of people who are so good that they don't need to be saved. Everyone is equally in need of being forgiven because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus is stressing his priority in mission. He has come for the lost. On another occasion, Jesus used a a pastoral picture to speak of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep, 99 of them safely secure in a fold, but one of them was lost. And that shepherd has a priority for the lost and he goes out to bring back the one who's not in the fold. Jesus comes with the restless heart of God for the one who is still outside the fold. That is the imperative of mission. It's something that the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law had had lost sight of. Uh, They were content with their own company and they were quick to condemn those who had any meaningful contact uh, with the very people who needed to hear about God. Now, of course, every Christian congregation uh, will continually face that temptation to to slump into itself, you know, to become, instead of uh, a, a missionary machine, to become a holy huddle. And you can tell... uh, whether or not we have lost sight of the fact that Jesus came not for the righteous but for sinners by the kind of priorities that are established in any kind of church. In any kind of church at all, the the kind of discussions that take place will show where priorities are. You know, if if the abiding uh, obsession is how hot it is in uh, the church on a Sunday morning, you know, if people are always complaining about the, the temperature in the church or whatever, something about the fabric or whatever the church, then that is an indicator of where priority is. Uh, Our money, of course, is a key indicator of where our priority lies. So if 
a church continually spends money on, uh, on fabric and make itself more and more comfortable and at the end of the financial year has, has nothing to spend on mission and outreach. It's an indication that it no longer has the, the reaching out to the lost as its number one priority. We as a congregation have and want to keep the priority of mission because we believe that Jesus' words are true. That the sick need a doctor and Jesus is that doctor. And he is the doctor that the people of Coatbridge and Airdrie and all the villages around us need. Jesus is the cure for the sin disease. Imagine... Imagine if, uh, by some means or other, you were given the cure for cancer, this scourge which afflicts so many. And, and yet, because of your busy, busy work schedule or uh, your preoccupation with holiday plans, you just never got around to, to sharing with sick people the cure for cancer. It's too appalling a thought to contemplate. But whilst cancer shortens lives, sin leads to eternal loss. And therefore, the overriding priority is to share the good news. People all around us are robbing God of his glory by the fact that they do not worship him. And we glorify God through reaching out and calling others to worship and honour the living God. Jesus gives the Pharisees a stinging rebuke. Go and learn, he says, what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, if you have a, a Bible with, the, with references in it, you'll see that it's from Hosea 6. And in the context, uh, God is pointing out that the, the people of Hosea's day have lost sight of the things that are important. And that they're holding on to the externals. They're holding on to the ritual of making sacrifice. But they no longer show mercy. And they they no longer love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and mind. Jesus similarly is telling the Pharisees that they have lost the plot. The fact that they could criticise Jesus for reaching out to Matthew and his friends over the issue uh, of segregating from uh, people who were, in their eyes, non-kosher, shows that they have lost all sense of the priority of God. The person who's truly a believer is someone who longs for others to know God as well. Their heart will beat uh, with the same heartbeat of mercy as does God. So, we have this mean and petty spirit shown by the religious leaders, and in contrast, Jesus seeks and saves Matthew, takes the initiative, calls him, and makes him into a new creature, into a new creation. It's interesting to to think a little about what Matthew's gospel (coughs) tells us about the man that Matthew became as a disciple. And one of the interesting things is that... (laughs) You go through Matthew's Gospel and he never quotes anything by himself that he said. There are no words of Matthew, the disciple, in Matthew's Gospel. So, by God's grace, 
This man became a, a humble servant of Jesus. Now, I, I would guess, I would guess that that probably was a sanctification, a, a growing in being like Jesus that took place over some time because to be a tax collector, you had to be pretty thick-skinned and you know, resistant to what people thought about you. You were a kind of go-and-get-it type of personality. And, and here, Matthew is transformed into someone who is, who is meek and humble. In fact, uh, in this passage, Matthew himself doesn't even mention that it was his home that the dinner party was held. Uh, now, we know that it was because the other gospel writers tell us about that. But in the Greek, in the original, uh, there's no mention of it being Matthew's house. He's a humble man. He also is qualified for his future task, um, qualified by his occupation. He was a tax collector. And to be a tax collector meant that you were having continual contact with, with people of the, the different uh, language groups in the land. So he would have to be fluent in Aramaic, which was the local language, and in Greek, the official language. And of course, it was Greek to which the Gospels were written. Uh, as, a, as a tax collector, he would have kept impeccable records. And again, we can see how in God's providence, somebody with that a scrupulous care for writing down things that were important would make the most excellent of gospel writers. Jesus calls people who are despised, makes them into people who are beautiful and useful in his service. And then lastly, Jesus has authority to defend his followers from man-made regulations. John's disciples come to Jesus asking why uh, they and the Pharisees fast. Fasting is simply uh, to do without food uh, or maybe something else for a, a length of time to, to sharpen your mind so uh, you can devote the time to God. A religious exercise. Why do we fast but your disciples don't? Now, very quickly, uh, three things. Jesus was not against fasting. Uh, Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he tells his disciples, uh, when you fast, uh, when you fast, don't make it obvious that you're fasting. Uh, anoint your head and uh, don't make yourself look gaunt as though you're really suffering because of this religious devotion. Uh, so he wasn't against fasting, but secondly, fasting was not a rule. Uh, it's very interesting that in the Old Testament, there was only one occasion when uh, everybody uh, was expected to fast. And that was at the time of the Day of Atonement. But over the course of time, the leaders had multiplied all of these different occasions when fasting was expected of religious people. Thirdly, uh, Jesus is reminding uh, them and us that when he is present, there is joy. He is the bridegroom. And, and therefore, uh, it's appropriate uh, in the constant of his presence to refrain from fasting. When you're going to a wedding, you're not going to a fast, you're going to a banquet, the time of, of joy and festivity. Jesus is the one 
who brings joy to our hearts. And he's saying that something special has happened with his coming. The hour of grace has struck and therefore things have to change. And he uses a number of pictures to show this. Uh, An unshrunk patch sewed to an old garment which is already shrunk. Uh, the, The patch will shrink and in shrinking will tear uh, the material to which it is sewn. Wineskins were made of leather. And with the passage of time, the the leather in a wineskin would become brittle, hard and brittle. If new wine was put into one of these brittle leather containers, uh, and the new wine was still fermenting, giving off gas, it would pressurise the wineskin and the wineskin could well burst. Therefore, uh, new wine had to be put into a new wineskin that was still elastic. Jesus is saying he's come uh, not simply to be contained by the Old Testament's rituals. Many features of the Old Testament are pictures looking forward to a reality. Uh, Ceremonies that were meant to portray the coming of grace, such as offering sacrifice, keeping ceremonially clean, keeping special feasts and and fasts, are now replaced by a new emphasis on being changed inside out by the Holy Spirit. And to hold on to these, uh, these things, and particularly those which were actually man-made and additional to the law, is to breed a spirit of legalism. In other words, a spirit that thinks that by ticking the boxes keeping the rules, you achieve God's acceptance. It's a dead end. And Jesus will not allow this new disciple and the rest of them to come under the tyranny of people who come with their own ideas and supplement the pure word of God. Imagine with me for a while what Matthew must have felt like as a new disciple. Here he is, first of all, overjoyed at the fact that Jesus has welcomed him as a follower. All these years, people who were religious have looked down on him and have kept him at arm's length. All of a sudden, he's found acceptance. And no sooner has he found acceptance, he begins to overhear uh, the officials of the religious order criticizing and tut-tut-tutting the fact that he's with Jesus. And he's just coming to terms with that when along come these people who want to impose these extra rules of fasting and are critical of the disciples of Jesus for not fasting. Talk about a culture shock for the new disciple. And Jesus is protecting Matthew and all who follow after Matthew from the tyranny of the legalist. Now, it's still the case that uh, there are well-meaning Christians who always want to impose uh, their own views and their own laws upon others, and especially upon young Christians, uh, or whatever it is. I know of Christians who are quick to mark down others for some things, some which sound ridiculous, in fact, like dancing at weddings, or not being teetotal, or going to the cinema, 
And such a censorious spirit can crush a new disciple. And we see Jesus intervening and telling these people uh, not to impose their regulations upon his followers. Jesus says to his followers, give me your all and ignore the gloom merchants. Find your joy in me. I am the new wine. And knowing me, you will be full and perfectly satisfied. So here, as we finish, is the wonderful message. Jesus Christ came to seek sinners. Jesus has come not to call the righteous or those who think they're righteous. He's come to call sinners. Now this morning, I don't know your heart, but God knows your heart. And it may be that you're holding out to the Lord Jesus, keeping back from becoming a Christian. And it may be also that the reason that you do so is because you feel that your own particular background is just too bad for Jesus to accept you. You might be saying, well, that you've polluted your mind because you've had a a history of viewing pornography and Jesus wouldn't accept somebody like that. And Jesus says, I have come for sinners. Or you might be saying, well, uh, in my past I was short-tempered to the extent of being uh, abusive. And there are people who still haven't forgiven me for that. How could I come and follow Jesus? And Jesus says this morning, I have come for sinners. Our sinnerhood is our ticket to come to Jesus. So if you're not a follower, then listen to Jesus' summons. Follow me and follow him. Give him the black check of your life. And if, like me, you are already a follower, then let's never lose sight of the priority of the gospel, the priority of sharing the gospel. Uh, I love the way that Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, puts this. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. All around us, not just in Edinburgh at Fringe Time, but all around us in Coatbridge and Airdrie. People are robbing God of his glory by withholding his worship. And they need to hear through you and me, Jesus call them to himself. Let's do all we can to glorify God through the sharing of the gospel. Amen. May God bless us. His word.
We're going to close now uh, with a hymn which is